is the 10X rule and how will it help me? The 10X rule is the holy grail for those who desire success. Seriously, if there's an end-all be-all, this is it. The 10X rule establishes the right levels of actions and thinking that will guarantee your success and ensure that you continue operating at those levels throughout your life and career. The 10X rule will even dissolve fears, increase your courage, increase your belief in yourself, eliminate procrastination and insecurities, and provide you with a sense of purpose that will revitalize your life, your dreams, and your goals. The 10X rule is the single principle that all top achievers are using in the most flourishing areas of their lives. Regardless of how you define success, this book will show you how to guarantee the attainment of it with any dream and in any economy. The first thing that has to happen is for you to adjust your thinking to 10X levels and your actions to 10X quantities. I will show you how 10X thoughts and actions will make life easier and more fun and will provide you with more time. After spending a lifetime studying success, I believe the 10X rule to be the single one ingredient that all successful people are using that they know and use in order to create the lives they desire. The 10X rule will show you how to define the correct goals, accurately estimate the effort needed, and discern how to approach your projects with the right frame of mind and then determine exactly how much action to take. You will see why success is guaranteed when you operate within these parameters of the 10X rule, and you will fully understand the single reason why most people never achieve success. You will discover for the first time the mistake people make when setting goals, that when done single-handedly destroys any chance of those goals ever becoming reality. You will also learn how to figure out the precise right amount of effort necessary to accomplish any goal of any size. Finally, I will show you how to make it a habit and a discipline to operate at 10x levels. And trust me, once you're doing so, success won't just be guaranteed. It will continue to perpetuate itself, literally producing more and virtually unstoppable triumphs for you and your family and your company. The 10x rule is a discipline. It is not an education. It's not a gift, a talent, or good fortune. It doesn't require some special personality trait. It's available to anyone who wants to employ it. The 10X rule will cost you nothing and gain you everything you have ever wanted. It is the way that individuals and organizations should approach the creation and attainment of all goals. I will show you how to make the 10X rule a way of life and the only way to handle projects. It will allow you to stand out among your peers and even in your industry in which you work. It will cause others to see you as almost superhuman and extraordinary in your actions and your commitment to success. They will recognize your status as a role model, not just in terms of professional achievement, but how to live life to its fullest. The 10X rule simplifies and demystifies the phenomenon of what success is and what it takes to be successful. Personally, the biggest mistake I've made is failing to set my targets high enough in both personal and professional aspects of my life. I want to say that again to you. The 10X rule simplifies and demystifies the phenomenon of what success is and what it takes to be successful. The biggest mistake I have made in my life is failing to set targets high enough in both professional and personal aspects of my life. You know, it takes the same amount of energy to have a great marriage as it does to have an average one just as it takes the same amount of energy and effort to make $10 million as it does to make $10,000. Sound crazy? It's not. And you'll see this when you start operating at 10x levels. Your goals will change, I promise you. 
And the actions that you take will finally start to match what you really are, who you really are, and what you're really capable of doing. You will start taking actions, followed by more actions, and will achieve what you've set out to do. Regardless of the conditions, regardless of the situations you face, regardless of the objections and the obstacles, you'll hit your target. The single most important contributor to success, any success that I've created in my life, came as a result of operating with what I call the 10x rule. These concepts of goal setting, target attainment, taking action, they're not taught in schools. They're not taught in management classes. They're not taught in some leadership training or a weekend conference at the Four Seasons. No formula exists, at least that I could find in any book, that determines the correct estimation of effort. Let's face it, if you don't estimate the right amount of effort and then take that, you're not going to hit it. Talk to any CEO or any business owner, and he or she will tell you that sufficient levels of motivation, work ethic, and follow-up are clearly in shortage today. Whether your goal is to improve the planet's social condition or to build the most profitable company in the world, you will be required to use 10x think and 10x actions to get there. It isn't a matter of education, talent, connections, personality, lucky breaks, money, technology, being in the right industry, or even being in the right place at the right time. Dude, it's about 10x. In every case in which someone has created massive levels of success, be it a philanthropist, entrepreneur, politician, a change agent, an athlete, a movie producer, I guarantee you he or she was operating using 10x during his or her ascent and attainment of their success. Another component that's required for success is the ability to correctly estimate the right amount of effort necessary for you and your team to even achieve the goal, to even be in the game of achieving the goal. By using the exact level of effort necessary, you will guarantee achievement of these objectives. Everyone knows how important it is to set goals. However, most people fail to do so because they underestimate the amount of action necessary to accomplish the goal. Setting the right targets, estimating the mandatory effort, and operating at that right level of actions are the only things that will guarantee your success and that will allow you to blast through the business cliches, competition, client resistance, economic challenges, risk aversion, and even fear of failure while taking concrete steps to reach your dreams. The 10X rule will ensure your success regardless of your talent, education, financial situation, organizational skills, time management, what a joke, the industry you're in, or the amount of luck that you have. Use this book as though your life and your dreams depend on it, and you will learn to operate at new and higher levels than you ever thought possible. What is the 10X rule? The 10X rule is the one thing that will guarantee that you get what you want in amounts greater than you ever thought was imaginable. It can work in every area of life, whether spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, familial, your family, and financial. The 10X rule is based on understanding how much effort and how much thought are required to get anything done successfully. Chances are that if you look back over your life, you'll see that you have wildly underestimated both the actions and the reasoning necessary to accomplish any endeavor to the point where it could be labeled successful. Although I myself have done well in the first part of the 10X rule, assessing the level of effort necessary to realize a goal, I failed miserably in the second part of the 10X rule, which was adjusting my thinking so that I dare dream at levels previously unimaginable. I will discuss both facets in detail.
I've been studying success for the better part of three decades, and have found that although there's much agreement about goal setting, discipline, persistence, focus, time management, leveraging through good people and networking, I've never been clearer on that one thing that really makes the difference. I've been asked hundreds of times in seminars and interviews, what is that one quality, the action, the mindset? What's that one thing, Grant, that will ensure a person creates extraordinary success? This question has nagged at me so that I could understand it. If there was one thing in my life that made a difference, what was it? Look, I don't have some gene that others are missing. I definitely haven't been lucky. I wasn't connected to the right people, and I didn't go to some blue-blooded school. So what was it that made me successful? Look, as I look back over my life, I see the one thing, the single one thing that was most consistent with any success I've achieved was that I always put forth 10 times the amount of activity, effort that others did. For every sales presentation, phone call, appointment others made, look, I was making 10. When I started buying real estate, I looked at 10 times more properties, and then I'd make offers to ensure that I could buy just one of them. That ensured that I could at least get the one piece of property I wanted at the price I desired. I've approached all my business enterprises with massive levels of actions that have been the single biggest determining factor in any success I've created. I was a complete unknown when I built my first company without a business plan and with no money. I had zero know-how. I had zero connections, zero money, and everything had to be generated off of new sales. However, I was able to build a sound, viable business just by utilizing and operating at activity levels that were far beyond what others considered reasonable. And I made a name for myself and literally changed an industry as a result of taking 10x levels of action. Let me be clear here. I don't think that I've created extraordinary levels of success, nor do I think I've tapped into my full potential. I'm completely aware that there are many people who are many times more successful, at least financially, than I am. Although I am not Warren Buffett, Steve Jobs, one of the founders of Facebook or Google, here's the reality. I've created multiple companies from scratch that have allowed me to have an overall enjoyable lifestyle that I consider successful. The reason why I didn't create extraordinary levels of financial success is because I violated the second part of the 10x rule. That is the 10x way of thinking. That would be my only regret in my life today, failing to approach my life with the right mindset, with 10x levels of thinking. If I had it all over to do again, probably will, I would actually set targets that are 10 times what I ever dreamed of from the very beginning. But like you, I'm working on that now, and I still have a few years to correct this. I mentioned the notion of creating extraordinary levels of success time and again throughout this book. So let me explain that. Extraordinary, by definition, means anything outside the realm of what most normal people can and do achieve. And of course, that definition would then depend on with whom or what class of success you're comparing yourself. Before you say, I don't need extraordinary levels of success, or success is not everything, or I just want to be happy, or whatever else you may be mumbling to yourself at this very moment, understand something. In order to get to the next level of whatever it is you're doing, you must think and act in a wildly different way than you previously have been. You cannot get to the next phase of a project without a grander mindset, more acceleration, and extra horsepower. Your thoughts and your actions are the reasons why you are where you are right now. So it would be reasonable to be suspect of both. Let's say you have a job but no savings. 
and you want to have another $1,000 a month coming in. Or perhaps you currently have $20,000 in the bank and you want to have a million dollars in the bank. Or maybe your company's doing a million dollars a year in sales and you want to get it to a hundred million. Look, whatever your circumstances, you have to take it to another level to get to the next level. Maybe you need to find a job. Maybe you want to lose 40 pounds. Maybe you want to find the right perfect partner for you. Although these scenarios cover many different aspects of life, they all have one thing in common. The person who desires them is not there yet. Each of these goals is valuable, and each will require a different way of conceptualizing and acting upon them in order to ever attain them. All of them can be defined as extraordinary if they exceed what you have come to know as ordinary. While it might not be exceptional compared to what others have done or what others are seeking, the goal you should set should always move you to a better place, higher ground, or toward an objective you've not yet achieved. Others might have an opinion about your success, but only you can decide if it's extraordinary. Only you know your true potential. And whether you're living up to your potential or not, no one else can judge your success. Remember, success is the degree or measure of attaining some desired object or end. Once you attain this desired end, the issue then becomes whether you can maintain, multiply, and repeat your actions in order to sustain that result or that success. Although success can describe an accomplished feat, people usually don't study success in terms of something they have done. They go at it with a mind towards something they're seeking to do. An interesting thing about success is it's like a breath of air. Although your last breath of air was important, it's not nearly as important as your next breath. No matter how much you've already achieved, you will desire to continue, I would expect, making accomplishments in the future. If you stop trying to succeed, it's like trying to live the rest of your life off the last breath of air. Look, things change. Nothing remains as it was. For things to be maintained, they require tension and action. After all, a marriage cannot maintain itself off the love felt on the wedding day. But people who are highly successful in both their professional and personal lives continue to work and produce and create even after they flourished. The world watches these people with amazement and confusion, asking questions like, Oh, why does he keep pushing so hard? Look, the answer's simple. Extremely successful people know that their efforts must continue in order for them to realize new achievements and new success. Once the hunt for a desired object or goal is abandoned, the cycle of success ends. Someone said to me recently, It's clear you've made enough money to live comfortably. Why are you still pushing and hammering and traveling? Look, it's because I'm obsessed with the next breath of accomplishment. I am compulsive with leaving a legacy and making a positive footprint and impact on planet Earth. I am most unhappy when I'm not accomplishing and most happy when I'm in the quest of reaching my full potential and abilities. My disappointment or dissatisfaction with where I am at this moment does not suggest something is wrong with me but rather that something is right with me. I believe that it's my ethical obligation to create success for myself, my family, my company, and my future. No one can convince me that there's something wrong with my desire to achieve a new level of success. Should I be happy with the love I have for my children and my wife yesterday? Or should I continue to have and create on that love and create in new amounts for today, tomorrow, and into the future? Look, the reality is that most people do not have whatever they define as success 
Many people want something more in at least one area of their life. Indeed, these are the people who will read this book, the unsatisfied who yearn for something more. There's nothing wrong with you. And really, who doesn't want more? Come on, better relationships, more quality time with those you love, more momentous experiences, a better level of fitness and health, increased energy, more spiritual knowledge, the ability to contribute to the good of society. Dude, who doesn't want that? Common to all of these things is the desire to improve, and they are qualities by which countless people measure success. Regardless of what you want to do or be, whether it is to lose 10 pounds, write a book, or become a billionaire or a trillionaire or whatever, your desire to reach these points is incredibly important element of ever being able to do so. you got to want it, right? Each of these goals is vital to your future survival because they indicate that it's within your potential. Regardless of the goal you're striving to accomplish in your life, you will be required to think differently. Embrace a die-hard level of commitment, and you will be required to take massive levels of action at 10 times the levels you think are necessary. And you will have to follow that up with more actions. Almost every problem people face in their careers today and other aspects of their lives, such as failed diets, failed marriages, financial problems, are the result of not taking enough action. So before you say to yourself for the millionth time, I'd be happy if I just had... Or, I don't want to be rich, just comfortable. Or, I just want to be happy. Look, you got to understand one vital point. Limiting the amount of success you desire is a violation of the 10x rule in and of itself. When people start limiting the amount of success they desire in the first place, I assure you they're going to limit what will be required of them in order to achieve success and will fail miserably at what it takes to ever get and keep success. This is the focus of the 10x rule. You must set targets that are 10 times what you think you want. That's right. You must set targets that are 10 times what you think you desire and then do 10 times what you think it will take to accomplish that target. Massive thoughts must be followed by massive actions. There's nothing ordinary about the 10x rule. It is simply what it says it is, 10 times the thoughts and 10 times the actions of everyone else, including what you thought was reasonable. The 10X rule is about pure domination mentality. You will never do what others do. You must be willing to do what they won't do and even take actions they might deem unreasonable. This domination mentality is not about controlling others, rather it's about being a model for others' thoughts and actions. Your mindset and deeds should serve as gauges by which other people can measure themselves. 10x people never approach a target aiming to achieve just that target. Instead, they're looking to dominate sectors, entire environments, and will take unreasonable actions in order to do so. If you start any task with a mind toward limiting the potential outcome, you will limit the actions necessary to accomplish that very goal. The following is a basic series of mistakes people make when setting out to achieve goals. Number one, they miss target by setting objectives that are too low and don't allow for enough correct motivation. Number two, severely underestimating what it will take in terms of actions, resources, money, and energy to accomplish that target. Three, spending too much time competing and not enough time dominating their sector. Number four, underestimating the amount of adversity 
they will need to overcome in order to actually attain their desired goal. The foreclosure issue that America is facing right now is a perfect example of this sequence of missteps, these mistakes. Those who fell victim to the situation were mistargeting, underestimating necessary amounts of actions and concentrating too intensely on being competitive rather than creating a situation that would make them invincible to unexpected setbacks. People were operating with a herd mentality, one based on competition instead of domination. During the housing boom, they thought in terms of, oh, my cousin's buying a house, I got to go buy one. You see, that's competitive thinking. They thought in terms of, I have to do what my colleague, neighbor, family member is doing instead of, I have to do what's best for my future, my survival. Despite what many people claim or want to believe, the truth is that every person who had a negative experience regarding the housing collapse and foreclosure mess did not correctly set his or her goals for survival. The number of foreclosures then impacted people's home values across the country. And when the real estate market crumbled, it negatively impacted everything, affecting even those who weren't playing the real estate game, that game. Unemployment suddenly doubled and then tripled. As a result, industries were crippled, companies were shut down, retirement accounts wiped out. Even the most sophisticated of investors misjudged the correct amount of financial wealth necessary to weather this kind of storm. Look, you can blame the banks, the Fed, Treasury, mortgage brokers, timing, bad fortune. You can blame God if you like, but the reality of the situation, every person, including myself, as well as countless banks, companies, and even entire industries failed to appropriately assess the situation. When people don't set 10x goals and therefore fail to operate at 10x levels, they become susceptible to get-rich-quick phenomenons and unplanned changes in the marketplace. That's what happened in the foreclosure mess. If you had occupied yourself with your own actions aimed at dominating your sector, you probably wouldn't have had time or been baited by these kind of you know, get-rich-quick temptations. I know because it happened to me. I got caught up in this situation because I had not properly stayed focused on my own targets at 10x levels and became susceptible to someone else's racket. Someone approached me, gained my trust, and claimed to be able to make me money if I would only join forces with them and his company. Because I didn't have enough skin in my own games, you know what I mean? Commitment, 10x. I was drawn into this get-rich-quick-easy scheme, and he hurt me, and he hurt me bad. Had I set my own targets properly, had I been completely committed to my own 10x mentality, I would have been so preoccupied with my own doingness and own doing of what was necessary to accomplish that, that, look, I wouldn't have had time for the guy. I'd have been like, dude, I don't have time for you because I'm preoccupied and wouldn't have met this crook. If you look around, you will likely see that humankind, by and large, tends to set targets at subpar levels. Many people, in fact, have been programmed to set targets that are not even of their own design. We are told what is considered to be what a lot of money is, what rich is, what poor is, and what middle class is. We have predetermined notions about what fair is, what difficult means, what is possible, what's ethical, what's good, what's bad, what's ugly, what tastes good, what looks good, and on and on. So don't assume that your goal setting isn't impinged upon these already established parameters. Any goal you set is going to be difficult to achieve, and you will inevitably be disappointed at some points along the way. So why not set these goals much higher than you deem worthy from the very beginning? 
If they're going to require work, effort, energy, and persistence, then why not exert 10 times as much on each? What if you're underestimating your own capabilities? Is that a possibility? Is it possible that your social upbringing actually causes you to underestimate what you're capable of? Oh, you might be protesting, saying to yourself right now, but Grant, what if I, you know, set goals that are unrealistic and I'm disappointed? Look, take just a few moments to study history, or even better, simply look back over your own life. Chances are that you have more often been disappointed by setting targets that are too low and achieving them, only to be shocked that you still didn't get what you really wanted, than you have been being disappointed with setting a target that was too high and not getting there. See, another school of thought is that you shouldn't set unrealistic goals. That's what you're told. Hey, don't set unrealistic goals because you might be compelled to give up on them. When you realize you can't reach them, you're just going to quit anyway. But wouldn't coming up short on a 10x or a 100x target accomplish more than coming up short on a one-tenth of your possibilities in your goal setting? Let's say my original aim was to make 100 grand, which I then changed to a million. I just say, you know what? I'm going to do a million. I'm going to make my target a million rather than 100. Which of these goals would you rather come up short on? Some people claim that expectations are the reasons for unhappiness. However, I can assure you from personal experience that you'll suffer greatly by setting subpar targets. You simply will not invest the energy, effort, resources necessary to accommodate unexpected variables and conditions that are certain to occur sometime during the course of the project or event or your quest. Come on, man. It doesn't make any sense. Why spend your whole life making only enough money just to end up with not enough money? Why work out in the gym only once a week just to get sore and never see a change in your body type? Why get merely good at something when you know the marketplace only rewards excellence? Why work eight hours a day at a job where no one recognizes you when you could be a superstar and perhaps even run or own your own company or the whole place? All these examples require energy. Only your 10x targets ever pay off. So let's return to our definition of success, a term most people have never even looked up, much less really studied. What does it mean for you to have success or to be successful? You know, in the Middle Ages, the word often referred to the person taking over the throne. The word derived from Latin, seceder. Now, that's power, baby. Okay, succeed literally means to turn out well or to attain a desired object or end today. But back in the day, it meant to take over the throne. Success today then is an accumulation of events turning out well or desired outcomes being achieved. Look how far we've reduced the concept of success. Think of it this way. You wouldn't consider a diet successful if you lost 10 pounds and put on 12, right? No, it'd be a failed diet. In other words, you have to be able to keep success, not just get it. And this is what people don't understand. Did you want to keep it? You would also want to improve upon that success to ensure that you are able to keep and maintain it. After all, you can cut your grass once and be successful in doing so, but look, it's going to grow again. You'll have to constantly maintain that yard in order for it to continue to be defined as a success. This isn't about attaining one goal one time, but rather about what you have to do to persist in creating new levels of success and keeping that. Now, before you start worrying that you're going to have to work at this forever, let me assure you that you won't. That is, not if you set the correct 10x target from the beginning. 
Talk to anyone who is wildly, extraordinarily successful in any field, and they will tell you it never felt like work. Most people feel like they're working because the payoff is not substantial enough. It doesn't yield an adequate victory to feel like something other than just work. Your focus should be on the kind of success that builds upon itself, that which is perpetual and doesn't happen one time. See, this book is about how to create extraordinary achievement, how to ensure you will attain it, how to keep it, and then how to keep creating new levels without it feeling like you're working. Remember, a person who limits his or her potential success will then limit what he or she is willing to do to create and keep it. That's really, really important to understand. It's also vital to keep in mind that the subject of acquirement, in other words, the goal or target doesn't matter as much as the mindset and the actions that are mandatory to accomplish the 10x goal. Look, whether you want to be a professional speaker, a best-selling author, top CEO, an exceptional parent, a great teacher, have a role model marriage, get in great shape, produce a movie that the world talks about for generations, whatever it is, you're going to be required to move beyond where you are now and commit to 10x thoughts and actions. Any desirable target or goal will always suggest something you have yet to accomplish. It doesn't matter how much you've already attained. As long as you are alive, you will either live to accomplish your own goals and dreams or be used as a resource to accomplish someone else's. I'm going to say that to you again. It's very important. And if you want to avoid being a slave, learn this. As long as you are alive, you will either live to accomplish your own goals and dreams or you will be used as a resource to accomplish someone else's goals and dreams. For the sake of this book, success can also be defined as accomplishing the next level of what it is you desire, and in ways that will forever change how you perceive yourself, your life, the use of your energy, and perhaps most significantly, how others perceive you. The 10X rule is about what you have to think and do to get to a point 10 times more gratifying than you have ever imagined. This level of success cannot be achieved by normal levels of thoughts and actions. That's why even when most of those goals that you have are attained, they don't actually provide sufficient fulfillment. Average marriages, average bank accounts, weight, health, businesses, products, and the like, they're just average. Are you ready for the 10X adventure? Okay, so you finish your first chapter. Here's what you want to know. The summary is, what are the two parts of the 10X rule? If you don't know them, go back and look it up. Okay, you have to get this in your life. Number two, what are the four biggest mistakes people make when setting goals? If you don't know them, you're going to make the mistakes. So go back and answer those. Number three, why is it a problem to set a goal too low? And lastly, baby, are you ready? Are you ready for the 10X adventure? Chapter 2, Why the 10X Rule is Vital Before we get into how important it is for you to think and operate according to the 10X Rule, let me share a little of my own story. For every project in which I have ever been involved, I underestimated the time, energy, money, and effort necessary to bring my project to the point of success. Any client I targeted or new sector of business that I've ventured into has always taken 10 times more calls, more mail, 10 times more emails and contacts than I'd originally predicted. Even getting my wife to go out with me and eventually marry me took 10 times more effort and energy than I had calculated. But trust me, 
it was worth every bit of it. Regardless of how superior your product, service, or proposition is, I assure you there will be something you haven't anticipated or correctly planned. Economic changes, legal matters, competition, resistance to converting, too new of a product, banks freezing up on you, market uncertainty, technology changes, people problems, more people problems, elections, wars, strikes. Look, these are just a few of the potential unexpected events that could happen. And I don't say this to scare you, but instead to prepare you for where the biggest opportunities exist for you. 10x thinking and actions are vital. They're the only things that will get you through those events. Money alone cannot get you through them. It'll help, but it can't do the job for you. If you march into any battle without the proper troops, supplies, ammunition, and staying power, you're going to return home defeated. It's as simple as that. It's not enough to occupy territory. You have to keep the territory. I started my first business when I was 29 years old. Most people won't go into business for themselves because they're not willing to take the financial haircut to start their own business. You understand, most of you to go in business, you're actually going to make less money in your first years of your new business than you were making at the job you had. I had prepared for this, or so I thought I had, and assumed that it would take me three or four months to get you know back to that income level of the job I previously had. Well, it took me almost three years to get my business to provide me with the same amount of income of my previous job. That was 12 times longer than I had expected. And I almost quit three months into my new business venture. Not because of the money, but because of the amount of resistance and disappointment I was experiencing. I had a very specific list of reasons why my company wasn't going to work. You know, I was failing. Three, four months, five months of just failing. I'm like, I came up with all these reasons. I compiled them in an attempt to talk myself out of continuing on my quest. I was beyond disappointment. I was distraught and all but destroyed. I literally went to a friend and said, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I made up reason after reason why it wasn't working out. It was the clientele didn't have the money. The economy sucked. The timing was wrong. I was too young. My clients didn't get it. People didn't want to change. I sucked. They sucked. And on and on. I eventually realized after spending so much time trying to figure out why things weren't working out, that it was completely possible that I was missing the answer entirely. You know, I never considered that I merely incorrectly estimated what it would take to move a new product into the marketplace at the very beginning of my process. I was presenting a new idea to the marketplace, absolutely for sure, but it wasn't one that anyone had asked for. I had limited funds, so I wasn't able to hire people, and I couldn't afford to advertise, which was unfortunate because no one knew who I was or my company was. I didn't know what I was doing and was cold calling organizations. I'm literally talking to people. I don't know their name and they don't know my name. If this was going to work, it would depend on my ability to increase my efforts, not increase my excuses. Once I quit calculating all the wrong reasons, I committed to making this work by increasing my efforts 10 times. And as soon as I increased my efforts 10 times, everything started to change and changed immediately. I went back into the marketplace with the same idea, but the right estimation of effort and started seeing immediate results. 
You see, instead of making two or three sales calls a day, I started making 20 to 30. When I ramped up my full commitment and aligned the correct levels of thought and action, the market started responding to me. Look, it was still hard, and I was still disappointed, but I was getting four times the result of making 10 times the effort. When you've underestimated the time, energy, and effort necessary to do something, anything, you will have quit in your mind, you'll have quit in your voice, you'll have quit in your posture, your face, and in your presentation. You won't develop the persistence necessary to get your mission accomplished. However, when you correctly estimate the effort necessary, you will assume the appropriate posture. The marketplace will sense by your actions that you're a force to be reckoned with and you're not going away. And it will begin to respond accordingly. I have consulted with thousands of individuals and companies over the past 20 years. And I have never, not one time, seen an individual or a company correctly estimate the amount of effort and think. Whether it was building a house, raising money, fighting a legal battle, getting a job, selling a new product, learning a new position, getting promoted, making a movie, or finding the right partner in life, it always took more than what the people calculated. I have yet to meet anyone, regardless of their success or even how easy it appeared to be, ever claim that it was easy. Achieving big goals may seem easy to those who are on the outside looking in, but those who know firsthand that actually played the game and succeeded know what it took and will never make that statement. When you miscalculate the efforts you need to make something happen, you become visibly disappointed and discouraged. This causes you to incorrectly identify your problem and sooner or later assume that the target is then unattainable and you start to throw in the towel. Most people, including managers, their first response to non-target attainment is to reduce the target rather than increase the activity. I have watched sales managers and organizations do this for years with their sales teams. They give a quota or agree on a target at the beginning of a quarter and then midway through the quarter, they find they're unable to achieve the target, so they hold a meeting and basically tell everyone, hey, let's just reduce the target to some more attainable, quote-unquote, figure in order for the team to stay motivated and have some chance of accomplishing their new target. This is a major mistake and should never even cross your mind as an option. It sends the wrong message to the organization that targets are unimportant and that the only way for us to win is to move the finish line up. A great manager will push a person to do more at the risk of coming up short rather than targeting less. This idea of changing targets to make everyone feel good will lead to a further weakening of morale, hope, expectations, and skills, and everyone will start assigning reasons, better known as excuses, as to why the team was unable to attain its targets. Look, warning, never, ever reduce a target, ever. Always increase your actions. When you start rethinking targets, making up excuses, letting yourself off the hook, you're giving up on your dreams. These actions should be an indication that you're getting off track. Considerations like rethinking targets, making excuses, letting yourself off the hook, that should be an indication, dude, I'm getting off track here, that you have to shift your thinking in terms of correcting the initial estimation of effort 
rather than making excuses. The 10x rule assumes the target is never the problem. Any target attack with the right amount of actions in the right amounts with persistence is attainable. Look, even if you want to visit another planet, if you assume the right actions taken in the right amounts over the right amount of time, you will accomplish that target. When people inadequately measure the actions necessary, they inevitably will start to try to make sense or rationalize why they're not hitting that target. Mankind seems to have this built-in automatic calculator whose only purpose is to explain away failure. The problem is that the first and most often used calculation always seems to be, oh, it's the target. The target's wrong. The target's too big. But never the activity level. This calculator, this mental deficiency, if you will, tends to be more emotional than logical. It judges the project. It judges the clientele, the economy, and even the individual to be deficient as a means of justifying why things are not working out. This is probably due to all the false content that has been loaded into our calculations by the media, the educational systems, the psychiatric community, and from our upbringing with excuses like, oh, the market's not ready, the economy's bad, this isn't wanted, don't work too hard, you're not cut out for it, your target was unrealistic, love life, enjoy life, life is to be loved, success is on the journey, not the destination. Look, that's garbage, man. You need to attain success for yourself. More often than not, it's simply that you haven't correctly assessed the amount of action necessary. That's the only reason you're failing. Regardless of the timing, the economy, the product, your breath, the suit you wore, or how big your adventure is, the right acts done to the right degree, persisted over time, guarantee you'll be successful. And I can assure you from experience, 30 years of building companies and bringing new products and ideas to the market, that there will be something you have not foreseen. Regardless of how detailed your business plan is, I don't care if your product costs nothing. It's free. You're going to give it to everyone. It'll still take more energy and effort than you think. Your product could be a 100 times superior to its closest competitor. And it could be free, and you will still have to apply 10 times more effort just to push through the noise in order to get people to even know about your product. Assume that every project you attempt will take more time, more money, more energy, more effort, and more people than you ever imagined. Multiply every expectation you have by 10, and you might be safe. And if it doesn't take 10 times more than anticipated, hey, lucky you. It's better to be pleasantly surprised than greatly disappointed. If you want to save time in getting your idea or product into the market, look, do this for yourself. Make sure you do 10 times more of everything in order to be in more places with more people over a shorter duration. For example, if you planned on it taking one person to pitch your idea, then plan on it taking 10 people in order to possibly be able to reduce the time it takes to get it to market. But remember, 10 times more people will take 10 times more money. And, oh, by the way, somebody's going to have to manage these 10 times more people. 10x parameters allow for a variety of unplanned variables that can strike at any point during a project. Employee problems, lawsuits, economic swings, uh, national, global events, competition, illness, and so forth get accommodated for. 
add to this list any marketplace resistance to projects, people being set in their ways and not able to want to change, shifts in technology, and, well, you have a whole slew of additional potential events that could derail your target. For some reason, people who develop an idea about something they want to bring to the market tend to embrace a sense of optimism that frequently causes them to grossly misjudge what it's going to take to complete their project. While enthusiasm for any project is clearly important, you cannot forget one important fact. Your potential customers are not as enthusiastic about your project as you are. Look, they don't even know it exists. Your potential market may only just be starting to wrap their head around your concept. Then, too, there's a possibility of complete apathy on the part of the marketplace that there's no interest whatsoever in changing or a new product or a new idea. Look, I'm not telling you this to be pessimistic, but to be prepared. Tackle your project with the 10x rule, like your life depends on it. Manage every action as though you have a camera on yourself every step of the way. Pretend you're being recorded as a model by which your children and grandchildren in the world will learn later from your recordings. Attack everything with the ferociousness of a champion athlete who is getting his single last opportunity to claim his pages in the history books. And always remember to follow through completely. That is the great common denominator of all winners. They see every action through to completion. They make no excuses and adopt a take-no-prisoners attitude. Approach every situation with a in-it-to-win-it-whatever-it-takes mindset. Oh, sounds too aggressive? Sorry, but that's the outlook required to win in this marketplace today. I know you've probably heard this before, but success does not merely happen. It is the result of relentless, proper actions persisted over time. Only those who operate with the appropriate view and corresponding actions will guarantee themselves of success. Luck clearly has something to do with success, but anyone who is getting lucky will tell you that their luck is directly proportional to how much action they're taking. The more actions you take, the better your chances of getting lucky. Exercise. What's the first reaction that most people have, including managers, when they're not hitting their targets. When you start making excuses for why you're not hitting your targets, what should that immediately indicate to you? And lastly, fill in the following. Stop doing what you're doing right now and fill this in. The 10X rule assumes the target is never blank. Any target attack with the right amount of blank in the right amount of blank with persistence is... Chapter 3, what is success? I know I've already used the term success maybe a hundred times already, but let's clarify what it actually is. It probably means something different to you than it does to me. The definition really depends on where a person is in life or what has his or her attention at that very moment. Success in early childhood might mean receiving an allowance for the first time or getting to stay up past one's bedtime. But that would no longer be of interest to you, hopefully, you know, when you're a teenager. Success in the teens might mean getting your own bedroom or cell phone for the first time or whatever, or maybe a later curfew. Now, success in your early 20s might mean furnishing your first apartment or getting your first promotion. Later on, 
It's going to be marriage, kids, promotions, travel, more money. Look, as you age and conditions change, the ways in which you're going to define success will transform and change and alter. When you're much older, you're likely to find success in good health, family, grandchildren, your legacy, and how you're going to be remembered. Where you are in life, the conditions you're facing at this moment, and the situations, the events, the people on which you have your attention is most focused will influence your definition of what success means to you at that time. Success can be found in any number of realms, financial, spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, philanthropic, communal, or familial. However, wherever you find success, however you define it, the most crucial thing to know about success in order to have it and keep it are the following three things. Number one, success is important. Number two, success is your duty. And number three, there is no shortage of success. I will discuss the first point, success is important in this chapter, and the other two in subsequent chapters. Success is important. Regardless of their culture, race, religion, economic background, or social group, most people would agree that success is vital to the well-being of the individual, the family unit, and the group, and certainly to the future survival of all these things. Success provides confidence, security, a sense of comfort, the ability to contribute at a greater level, and hope and leadership for others in terms of what might be possible. Look, without success, your group, your company, your goals and dreams, and even the entire civilization would cease to survive and thrive. Think of success in terms of expansion. Without continued growth, any entity, be it a corporation, dream, a race, ceases to exist. History is full of examples that support a notion that disaster occurs when expansion doesn't continue. You could include the Vikings, ancient Rome, Greece, communist Russia, and an endless list of companies and products. Look, success is needed in order to perpetuate, to push forward people, places, and things. You must never reduce success in your mind or in a conversation to something that doesn't matter. On the contrary, you must treat success as though it's vital, it's important. Anyone that minimizes the importance of success to your future has probably given up on his or her own chances of accomplishment and is spending now his or her life trying to convince others, you in this case, to also give up. Individuals and groups must actively accomplish their goals and targets in order to carry on with their goals and targets. If not, look, they'll either cease to exist or be consumed and become part of something else. Companies and industries that wish to maintain their status must successfully continue to create products and then get those products into the market, acquire clients, keep the clients, acquire employees, keep the employees, and then keep all these players happy and then repeat that cycle over and over. There are far too many cute sayings that seem to dismiss the importance of success like, Success is a journey, not a destination. Please, man, you're killing me. You're making me sick. I want to puke. When terrible economic contractions occur, everyone quickly realizes they can't eat or make house payment with cute little sayings. The economic events 
of just the past several years should make it obvious how badly we have all underestimated the importance of success and how essential it actually is to your family, your company, and your personal survival. It's not enough just to play the game. It's vital you learn how to win at this game. Winning over and over again at everything in which you're involved ensures you're going to be able to further expand and survive. And it guarantees that both you and your ideas will survive, not just get by, but survive into the future. Success is equally important to a person's sense of self. Look, let's face it, when you're successful, it promotes a sense of confidence. What's wrong with that? When you're successful, it promotes a sense of imagination and a sense of security, and it emphasizes the significance of your contributions. People who are unable to provide for their families in their future put themselves and their family at risk. That can't be good. People who aren't successful can't buy goods and services. This can cause an economy to slow down, even crash, causes taxes to be diminished which will then negatively impact funding of schools, hospital, and public services. Now, I know about this time someone's saying, but Grant, success is not everything. And of course it isn't everything. Who, who said that? I always wonder, what point are you trying to make when you have this thought or make that statement? Someone once in my seminar said to me, you know, Grant, success isn't everything. And I said, are you trying to diminish the importance of success? You know, the success you haven't been able to attain? Is that what you're trying to do here? Because I don't understand your point. Of course success is not everything. Get real. Regardless of whatever your goals that you're trying to attain, success is critical, man. Quit playing with it. Quit diminishing the value of it. It is vital. It is critical. If you quit caring, then you're going to quit winning. And if you quit winning long enough in this thing called success, you're going to just plain quit. Do kids benefit when they see their moms and dads losing and quitting? No. Does anyone benefit when they don't get their art sold or you don't get that great book written and you don't get it published and nobody buys it? Dude, nobody wins. No one benefits from failure. However, if you're able to reverse it and attain your goals and be successful and acquire the dreams you set for yourself, now that has positive outcomes. So your exercise here, what are some cute sayings that you've heard about success that actually diminish the importance of success? Very important you write that down now so you can start understanding what people are telling you and what you've been made to believe. Second question in the exercise, how would being successful be important to you and how would it improve your life? Chapter four, success is your duty. One of the greatest turning points in my life occurred when I stopped casually waiting for success and instead approached success as my duty, my obligation, and my responsibility. I literally began to see success as an ethical issue, a duty to my family, my company, and my future, rather than as something that may or may not happen to me. I spent 17 years getting a formal education that was supposedly going to prepare me for the world. And you know, not one course was on success, much less nothing told me what I was going to have to do in order to get it. Amazing. Years of education, information, hundreds of books, 
time in class and money that I borrowed from the federal government, yet I was missing the single thing that was most necessary, the purpose. What's the purpose? However, I was fortunate enough, didn't feel fortunate at the time, to have two distinct experiences in my life that served as major wake-up calls. My existence and survival in both these times were seriously threatened. The first occurred when I was 25. My life was a mess, I mean pitiful mess, caused by years of approaching life aimlessly. I was drifting with no real purpose and no real focus. I had no money, plenty of uncertainty, no direction, too much free time, and still hadn't made a commitment to approach success as an obligation. Now look, don't misunderstand me. I wanted money and I wanted to be successful, but I hadn't approached it as a duty and obligation yet. Had I not had this realization at 25 and gotten serious about my life, I don't think I'd be alive today, much less successful. Look, I would be dead. You know, you don't need to grow old to die. I was dying at the age of 20 as a result of no direction and no purpose. At that time, I couldn't hold a job, had surrounded myself with losers, was terminally hopeless, literally terminally hopeless, and if that weren't enough, using drugs and alcohol on a daily basis in amounts that would kill most people. Had I continued on without a serious wake-up call, I would have continued to live, at best, a mediocre existence, and probably much worse. Had I not committed to a life of success as a duty, I would not have identified my purpose in life and would have merely spent a life fulfilling someone else's purpose. Let's face it, there are plenty of people living mere existences, and I should know. At that time in my life, I was in sales, and I treated sales in the business I was in with complete disdain and dislike. When I finally committed to sales as a career, as my duty and my obligation and my responsibility, and decided finally to do whatever it took in order to become successful at selling, bam, everything changed. And you know what? Selling was no longer the problem. I was winning at it. Now, my second awakening, completely different, took place recently, actually, at the age of 50, 25 years later. The economy was going through the biggest contraction since the Great Depression. Literally every aspect of my life was being put at risk, as it was for billions of other individuals on planet Earth, including companies, industries, even entire economies. It became evident almost overnight because of external happenings that the companies that I had developed were not powerful enough in their sectors, and the future now was in jeopardy. Not because of something I did, but because of what was happening around me. Additionally, my financial well-being, for the first time in 25 years, had been put in jeopardy. What others thought was a tremendous financial wealth that I had collected over the years, for the first time, was in danger. I remember turning on TV one day and hearing reports about unemployment numbers increasing, wealth being destroyed due to the stock market collapse, housing corrections, homes being foreclosed on, banks shutting down, and companies being bailed out. I realized that I had put my family, my company, and myself in a precarious situation because I had started to rest on my laurels and had discontinued approaching success as a duty, obligation, and a responsibility. Look, I had lost my focus and purpose. At both of these pivotal points in my life, both completely different, I woke up to the fact that success is important in order to have a full life. In the second case, I realized that greater quantities of success 
are necessary than most people ever calculate. And that continued pursuit of success must be approached not as a choice, but as an absolute must. Most people approach success in the same way that I did when I hadn't fully committed to it. They look at it as though it doesn't really matter, like it's an option or perhaps just something that other people get to have. Others settle for just a little success. They believe, oh, if I just get a little, everything's going to be all right. Look, treating success as an option is one of the major reasons why most people never create success for themselves and why people don't even get close to living to their full, true potential. Ask yourself, how close are you living to your full capability? Really? You might not like the answer very much. Look, if you don't consider it your duty to live up to your full potential, then you're not. You just simply won't do it. If it doesn't become an ethical issue for you, then you won't feel obligated and driven to fulfill your capacity, you know, your capabilities. People don't approach the creation of success as a must-have obligation, do-or-die mission, gotta-have-it, hungry dog on the back of a meat truck, mentality that's like just sticks to you, you're obsessed by. Look, if you don't approach it like that, you're not going to have it. They then spend the rest of their lives making excuses of why they don't get it. And that's what happens when you consider success to be an alternative or an option rather than an obligation. In my home today, we consider success vital to our family's future survival. We consider it our obligation to create success. My wife and I are on the same page with this concept. We meet often to talk about why it's important to us and determine exactly what we have to do and what we're willing to do to keep secondary issues out of the way of the primary issues. Now, I'm not just talking about money here. I just don't mean success in monetary terms, but in every area, our marriage needs to be successful. Our health needs to be successful. Man, me as a spiritual being, I, I want to be successful as a spiritual being, and I want to know who I am and where I'm going. The contributions to the community, I want that to be successful. I want my future to be successful even long after we're both gone. See, you have to approach the notion of success the way a good parent approaches duty to their children. It's an honor, an obligation. The kids are a priority. Good parents will do whatever it takes to take care of their children. Anything. They'll die for their kids. They'll get up in the middle of the night to feed their baby. They'll work as hard as they have to in order to clothe and feed them. They'll fight for them, even put their lives at risk to protect them. See, this is how you want to fight for success. Duty, obligation, responsibility. So quit lying to yourself. Look, it's fairly common for people who don't get what they want to provide justifications, even lie to themselves, by minimizing how valuable success is to them. This is the first thing I see people do. They just start lying. They diminish the importance of success as the way to justify them not having success. It's easy to spot this trend in society today within entire demographics and segments of the population. You can read it in books, hear it in church, and see it promoted in the schools. For example, children who can't get what they want, they'll fight for a little while, cry for a bit, and then convince themselves they never wanted it in the first place. Well, look, man, you're not a kid anymore. It's entirely okay to admit that you wanted something that didn't come to fruition. Don't give up on it, man. Fight for it. Make it your duty. In fact, this is the only thing that will help you eventually reach your goal. 
there's going to be obstacles that you're going to encounter along the way. And if you give up when you get hit by them, you're not going to get anything. Even the most fortunate and well-connected people among us must do something to put themselves in the right place at the right time in front of the right people. You understand what I'm saying? Even the lucky and the fortunate, the well-connected, have to put themselves in the right place at the right time in front of the right people. As I mentioned at the end of the previous chapter, luck is just one of those byproducts of those who take the most action. I get lucky the more I do. The reason why successful people seem so lucky, and don't be a hater, is because success naturally allows for more success. You know, success just perpetuates success for some reason. People create magical momentum by reaching their goals, which then compels them to set and eventually even reach loftier goals. And you look at them and say, oh, they're lucky. Unless you're privy to the action that they're taking, you don't see or hear about the number of times the supposed successful went for it and failed. After all, look, the world only pays attention when people are winning. Colonel Sanders, who made Kentucky Fried Chicken famous, pitched his idea more than 80 times before anyone bought the concept. It took Stallone three days to write the script for Rocky. Three short days. The movie grossed $200 million. And when he wrote it, he had no money couldn't afford to heat his apartment, even had to sell his dog for $50 just to buy food for himself. See, you don't see the failures. You see, boy, it was easy for him to write that three-day script. Walt Disney was laughed at for his idea for an amusement park, and yet now people all over the world spend hundreds of dollars a day on tickets that they save for their whole lives just to have a family vacation at Disney World. Don't be confused by what looks like luck. Lucky people don't make successful people. People who completely commit themselves to success get lucky in life. Someone once said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. If you're able to repeatedly attain success, it becomes less of a success and more of a habit and almost everyday way of life for the successful. Successful people are then described as having a certain magnetism, some type of X factor or magical charm that seems to surround them and follow them. Why? Because successful individuals approach success as a duty, an obligation, and a responsibility. It's their right. You become a magnet for success when you make it your duty. Let's say there's an opportunity for success in the vicinity of two people. Okay. Do you think it's going to end up with the person who believes success is his duty, who reaches out and grabs it, who believes they're a magnet that is due them, it's theirs, or only one of the two of you can get it, or to the one who approaches it as take it or leave it kind of attitude? I think you know the answer. The duty's going to get it. Take it or leave it. Even if he gets it, he's probably going to blow it once he gets it and won't be able to repeat it. Look, despite the often used phrase, there's no such thing as an overnight success. You cannot show me one overnight success. Once we dig in, we're going to find out they did a lot to get that overnight success. Success always comes as a result of earlier actions, always. No matter how seemingly insignificant those actions are or how long ago they may have taken, somebody had to do something. Anyone who refers to a business, product, actor, band, Anything, any dream, concept, or idea as an overnight success neglects to understand the mental stakes that certain individuals have to make in order to forge the path 
They don't see the countless actions taken before these people actually created and acquired their much-deserved victory. Even those born into royalty had to do something. Look, success comes about as a result of mental and spiritual claims to own it, followed by taking necessary actions over time until that state is acquired. If you approach success with any less gusto than your ethical and moral duty, obligation, and responsibility to your family, your company, and your future, you will most likely not create success and have even more difficulty keeping it. I guarantee that when you, your family, and your company begin to consider or approach success as a responsibility and an ethical issue, then everything else will immediately start to shift. Although ethics are certainly a personal issue, most people will agree that being ethical is not necessarily limited to telling the truth or stealing or not stealing money. Our definition of ethics or your understanding of ethics could certainly be expanded from just stealing money or not stealing money, perhaps even include the notion that you are required to live up to your potential with which you've been blessed in order to be truly ethical. I even suggest to you that failing to insist upon abundant amounts of success in whatever area of life, or in fact all areas of life, is somewhat unethical. To the degree that electing to do your personal best each and every day is ethical, then failing to do so is a violation of your ethics. You must constantly demand success as your duty, obligation, and responsibility, and I'm going to show you how to guarantee that this happens in any business, any product, any industry, at any time, despite all obstacles, and in whatever volumes of success you desire. Remember, success must be approached from an ethical viewpoint. Success is your duty, obligation, and responsibility. Okay, your exercise in this chapter Bang it out quick. Success should be approached as blank, blank, and blank. Now, write in your own words how success is your duty, obligation, and responsibility. Great. Write down two examples of how you lie to yourself about what success is. And lastly, what are the two things that are important to know about success? Chapter 5, there is no shortage of success. The way you view success is just as important as how you approach success. Unlike a product that is manufactured in inventory, the good news about success is there's no limit as to how much success a person can create. You can have as much as you want, and so can I. And your achievement doesn't prevent or limit my abilities to achieve my success. Unfortunately, most people look at success as though it's somehow a scarcity. They tend to think that, oh, if Mike's successful, if he makes it, it will somehow inhibit their ability to create success. Look, success isn't a lottery. It's not a bingo game. It's not a horse race. It's not a card game. It doesn't allow for just one winner. It is simply not the case that there's a shortage of success. It's not a product. Garden Gecko in the movie Wall Street said, for every winner, there is a loser. This was his whole pitch on the zero-sum game, that there has to be a loser. But success is not a commodity. It's not a resource. There's no limited reserves on it. 
There will never be a dearth of success. By the way, the editor added that word. That's not one of my words. Dearth means a lack, a shortage. There will never be a dearth of success because it's created by those who have no limits in terms of ideas, creativity, ingenuity, talent, intelligence, originality, persistence, and determination. Notice that I refer to success as something that's created, not acquired. Unlike copper, silver, gold, diamonds, or items that already exist that you got to find to bring to the market, success is something people make. Great ideas, new technologies, innovative products, fresh solutions to old problems are all things that cannot exist in shortages. The creation of success can take place all over the world, either at the same time or at different times and at different levels. And it can happen by millions of people and still not have any limits. Success doesn't depend on a resource or a supply or space or time. Politics and the media perpetuate, you know, these concepts of shortages by suggesting there's not enough of certain things to go around that if you have something, I can't have it. Many politicians believe they need to spread this myth in order to energize their followers to take a stand for them or against another politician or a party. They make statements like, I will take better care of you than the other guy. I will make life easier for you. I will reduce taxes for you. I promise better education for your kids. I'll make it more possible for you to be successful. Dude, you know it's all garbage. They're not going to do anything for you. Both sides are saying the same things to get you energized. The underlying implication of their claims is that only they can do this for you and the other guy can't and won't. You see? So you take sides. Oh, there's a shortage. He can't make me. No, you're right. Neither one of them can. These politicians first emphasize the topics and initiatives that they know their followers consider important. Then they create the sense that citizens, you, aren't capable of doing or creating success for yourself. They highlight that scarcity exists, and they do their best to make people feel that their only chance at getting what they want and what they need is that some government must support them and take care of them. Otherwise, they imply that your chances of getting your share become even more remote. Look, man, all you got to do is take a quick look at the most successful people. They're not dependent upon anyone. One of the reasons why it's difficult to discuss politics or religion with people is because any exchange or communication or discussion about both tend to suggest a shortage, which then causes inevitable disputes. For example, if your political beliefs win, then someone else's loses. If one party gets what it supports, then supposedly another group must suffer. The same can be said for certain general attitudes and viewpoints. You know, it's extremely difficult for people to agree to disagree. People operate under the assumption that one person's beliefs cannot be maintained if another person's conflicting beliefs even exist. This notion, based on once again the concept of limits and shortages, only increases the amount of tension we have with one another. Look, why does one person have to be wrong and another one right? Is there a chance that Jen could be right, have one idea, and I could also be right and have a completely different one? Why the need for shortages? See, the notion of competition suggests that if one person wins, someone else has to lose. Although this might be true in a board game, 
where the goal is to produce one winner, this is not the reality with regard to success in business and in life. Look, the big players do not think in terms of restrictions like this. Instead, they think without limits, something that allows them to soar to levels that many consider are once considered impossible. Financial legend Warren Buffett's success is not capped or limited because of someone else's investment strategies, and in no way does his financial proudness and success confine or limit my ability to create financial success for myself. The founders of Google didn't stop the creation of Facebook, nor did two decades of Microsoft's dominance in the marketplace prevent Steve Jobs from raising Apple's profiles with iPods, iPhones, and iPads. Similarly, the amount of new products, ideas, and successful creations by these companies and ones like them over the past years will not prevent you and others from generating future success at even more astounding magnitudes. You don't have to look far to see the shortage myth perpetuated by most of the population via expressions of envy, disagreement, unfairness, and suggestions that those who hit it big have been unfairly compensated. The constant reports in the media shortage of jobs, money, opportunities, and disparity between earning incomes. How often do you hear someone make the claim that there isn't enough time in the day? Or, you know, 1% of the people make more money than 50% of the population. Or someone else complains that there aren't any good jobs or no one is hiring. The reality is that even if 20% of the population was unemployed, 80% of them would have jobs. And the truth is, the 20% could get a job anytime they wanted to if they really amped up and made it their duty, obligation, and responsibility. Another example of this shortage thinking took place recently in my own neighborhood. The man who lives next door to me, incidentally, one of the most famous actors in Hollywood today, major player, major star, incredible talent. The road that separates my house from his constantly has potholes. That the city, you know, they're out of money. They never seem to be able to get up there to fix them. Another one of my neighbor who lives at the end of the street had the gall to suggest to me that the movie star, the A-lister guy, should pay to fix the street because he makes $20 million plus a movie. This is shortage concept mentality. This is a person that's screwed up in the head, man. I was shocked by this person's thought process regarding success. The, the winner, the actor hitting it big, he should pay for the street because he's created success beyond that which me or my neighbor has been able to. And because of that, he should foot the bill for fixing the street that all three of us drive down. I was thinking that the rest of us should improve the road for him. I'm thinking, man, we ought to fix the road for him. He improves the value of our whole neighborhood. You know, when some TV personality or some major player on Wall Street gets a massive financial contract or payday, people often react by asking, how can one person get paid so much money? It's not fair. And you hear all this hating going on, this envy. But money is created by man and printed by machines. Look, not even money exists in shortages. It merely suffers from reductions in value. Some group deeming a single individual worth $400 million should be an encouragement to anyone that wants $400 million. Look, anything becomes possible. Why be a hater? I found that most, if not all, shortages are simply manufactured concepts. They're notions. They're made up. They're myths. 
the company or organization that can convince you that there are limited amounts of whatever that you might need or want, be it diamonds, oil, water, clean air, cool weather, warm weather, energy, whatever, is able to produce a sense of urgency, thereby inspiring people to support their cause. Look, rid yourself of the concept that success can be restricted or cut off or comes in amounts. Operating under the notion that there's a shortage will hurt your ability to create success for yourself. Let's say that you and I are bidding to win a client, and I get the client's business. This doesn't mean that you cannot be successful. After all, this wasn't the only client you were bidding for, was it? See, if you failed here and you don't have anybody to replace this client with, being dependent on only a single thing or person for success is what limited your chance of achieving success. Although you and I were competing on this one contract and awarded one of us the winner, there's a third player neither one of us knew about, Mr. Think Big, no shortage, the player, the slayer. And he's winning thousands of clients while you and I are fighting and quibbling over one. And he shows us the real definition of success. To get beyond the shortage myth, you have to shift your thinking to see that others' achievements actually create an opportunity for you to win. Success for anyone or any group should be considered ultimately a positive contribution to all people and all groups as it provides validation of the possibility that success exists at all. That is why people become so inspired when they witness some great victory or performance. Seeing success in action invigorates all of us and then reduces, whether you know it or not, is reducing our belief that the ability to accomplish something is impossible. Whether the success is a new technology, a medical breakthrough, a higher score, a faster time, a new record price for something, or whether you participated or not, achievements that are extraordinary or confirmation that success is not in shortage and is entirely possible to you and everyone else. So erase any concepts that you might have that success has limits or that success is limited to some or only comes in certain amounts. You and I can get as much as we want, and we can do it at the same time. The moment you start thinking someone else's gain is your loss, you limit yourself by thinking in terms of competition and shortages. This is the moment when you must discipline your thinking to equate any success, even someone else's success, with the possibility that you can have more success. Then move back to your commitment that success is your ethical duty. This will motivate the most creative parts of you to find the solution and the way in in which you can create original success for you in abundant amounts. Okay, the exercise. Look, write down an example of shortages of success that you have seen in your life. That's right. Write down examples of shortages of success. Now I want you to write down how were these supposed shortages actually created? Because you probably had difficulty even coming up with the examples of shortages of success. And the last one is there exists no shortages of success, but what is there a truly a shortage of? Chapter six, assume control for everything. 
I was going to call this chapter, Don't Be a Little Bitch, but decided to back off a bit so as not to offend anyone, and there I went and slipped and said it anyway. I've been trying to work this title in since I published my last book, which became a New York Times bestseller. It's called If You're Not First, You're Last. I still love this title, Don't Be a Little Bitch. I've been dying to work it in someplace, and I finally squeezed it in. I love that. I thought it'd be uh, perfect for this chapter since the purpose here is to discuss the idea that crybabies, I said it, whiners and victims just don't do well at attracting or creating success. It's not even that they aren't capable. It's just that people who typically succeed are required to take big actions. And it's impossible to take big actions if you don't take big responsibility. It's equally impossible to do something positive when you're spending your time making excuses. Hey, look, it's not even that these people aren't capable. It's just that people who typically succeed are required to take big action. And it's impossible to take big actions if you don't take big responsibility. It's equally impossible to do something positive when you're spending your time making excuses. Because look, man, making excuses is just being negative. You must understand, as I've already stated countless times, success is not something that happens to you. It's something that happens because of you. And because of the actions that you took. People who refuse to take responsibility generally don't do well at taking much action and subsequently don't do well in the game of success. Successful people accept very high levels of accountability for creating and having success for themselves and even for failing to do so. Now, if when I said that, you thought about some rich guy that never takes responsibility, I promise you he's not successful, not truly successful in his life. Successful people hate the blame game and know that it's better to make something happen, good or bad, than to have something happen to them. Those who suffer from victim thinking, victim thinking, which I roughly estimate, definitely not scientific here, about 50% of the population could be more, will hate this chapter and probably pick this book up by mistake. Anyone who uses blame as the reason why something happened or did not happen, I promise you, will never accumulate real success in life and only further his or her status as a slave on this planet. I'm going to say that to you again. It's ugly, man. It's ugly. If you can't swallow it, you know what they say about the shoe. Anyone who uses blame as the reason why something happened or did not happen will not accumulate real success in their life and only will further his or her status as a slave on planet Earth. Those who give control over to another for their success or their lack of success will never be in control of their lives or their futures. No game in life is truly enjoyable without first accepting control over your understanding of the game, how to play the game, and then the outcome of the game. People who assume the position of victim will never be secure. Simply because they elect to turn over responsibility to another party and because they never elect to know for themselves what they can do. They therefore never take charge over their outcomes going forward saying, I am a little victim, bad things happen to me often, and they do it with pride, and I cannot do anything about it. Oh, woe is me, the little bitch. This is not in the book, by the way. To get where you want to go in life, 
you must adopt the view that whatever is going on in your world, good, bad, or nothing, is something caused by you. I assume control over everything that happens to me, even for those things that I appear to have no control over. Whether I'm in control or not, I still elect to claim responsibility and control so that I can do something to improve my situation going forward. If, for example, the electricity goes out of my neighborhood, rather than blaming the city or the state for the blackout, I look at what I could do differently in order not to be impacted negatively the next time this might happen. Now, don't confuse this with some compulsive need for control, which I don't think is bad, by the way. It's simply a high-level, healthy sense of responsibility and a way for me to generate an effective solution to a problem or a situation that might exist in the future. The reality is, look, I didn't have anything to do with the lights going out. It could have been to too many people using electricity at the same time or a heat wave. It could have been an earthquake. It could have been somebody hitting a transformer. Look, I paid my bill, man. I paid as scheduled. And now I'm out of electricity and heat, and I'm unable to boil my water, refrigerate my food, use my computers, watch TV, run my business, and take care of my family. Look, blaming doesn't change those conditions. And because success is my duty, my obligation, and my responsibility, it's a little hard for me to now turn that over to the state and the city. I mean, if you're going to turn control over somebody, please don't give it to them. It's kind of hard to consider yourself successful if you're without lights, heat, and having to look at spoiled foods in the refrigerator. When I assume and increase my responsibility for this exact situation, we're back to the lights, I guarantee you I'll come up with a solution going forward. You've probably already thought of what it could be. This didn't happen to me because the electricity went out. Hey, look, it happened to me because I didn't have a backup generator. This wasn't bad luck or bad planning. It was a result of turning responsibility over to the state or the city. Don't be a little bitch, I say. Get a generator. Oh, but generators cost money, Grant. Not everybody can have a generator, Grant. Hey, truth is, when the electricity is out, you're not going to worry about the money you don't have. You're going to worry about the lights you can't live without. Not as much money as being without electricity for three days and not being able to take care of your family for three days and not run your business for three days. See, once you decide to take control of everything and increase your responsibility for everything, you're going to find successful solutions to making your life better and to guaranteeing success for yourself, your family, your household, and your future. Assume control and increase responsibility by adopting the position that you make all things happen, even those things you had previously considered not to be under your control. Never, never take the position that things happen to you. Rather, take the position that they happen because of something you did or you did not, maybe you failed to do. If you're willing to take credit when you win, baby, you got to take credit when you don't win. Increasing your responsibility level will inherently enhance your ability to find solutions and create success and more success and future successes for yourself. Blaming someone else or something else or somebody else or some country or group only extends how long you're going to be a victim and then a slave. Assuming control will cause you to start to look at what else you can do to make sure negative events don't take place so that you can improve the quality of your life and reduce the occurrence of seemingly random, unfortunate events. So let's say somebody rear-ends me. Somebody drives into the back of my car. Clearly that person's at fault, right? Yeah, of course. Although I'm going to be upset with him or her, I'm probably going, hey, what are you doing? 
The last thing I want to do is assume the responsibility of the position of being a victim. Why'd you do that to me? Look at what happens to you when you assume that position. How horrible. Look what happened to poor old little me. I'm a victim. Look, would you get a business card or have a television campaign stating this to the public as a way to garner respect and attention? Can you imagine on a business card? Sales professional, also victim part-time. You know, or you run a TV ad. Our company is victim-oriented. No, man. Why would you even say it to yourself? Of course not. Never claim the position of a victim after you made a decision to create a life filled with success. You see the conflict? Instead, figure out how to reduce the chances of this inconvenience rear-ending people that can't drive. You know they're out there. The 10X rule refers to massive amounts of action taken persistently over time. In order to make good things happen more often, you cannot afford ever to act like a victim. Good things just don't happen to victims. Bad things happen to victims, and they happen to them quite frequently, and all you got to do is ask them. Those who embrace the victim position will gladly go on and on and on with you about how they had nothing to do with the many bad and endless breaks they've had in life, their life of being a victim. There are four consistent factors in the life of every victim. Number one, bad things happen to them. Number two, bad things happen often. Number three, they're always involved in the bad things. They were involved, right? And number four, someone or something else is always to blame. Successful people, on the other hand, take the opposite stance. And you must take this stance in order to acquire and maintain success. Successful people assume that everything that happens in their life comes as a result of their own responsibility, not because of some outside force. This is going to prompt them to start looking for ways to move beyond situations and take control of not having bad things, quote-unquote, happen to them. Begin to ask yourself, after every unpleasant encounter or event, what can I do to reduce my chance of that ever happening again? Or, what can I do to ensure this never, ever happens again? Returning to my earlier example of being rear-ended, there are many ways that you or me might have prevented this from happening. From having a distracted, idiot, if you will, driver run into the back of your car or my car. Look, you could have gotten a driver. You could have left earlier. You could have left later. You could have closed the deal last week rather than having to go out and get it today. You could have taken a different route. Or, hey, you could be so important that your clients would actually drive to you rather than you driving to them. What were you doing driving to somebody else anyway? Come on, man. Take your game to another level. What I'm trying to do is get you to shift your thinking a bit more. Move. Many people agree with the notion that you draw or attract things into your life. Most people I talk to, oh, yeah, I believe in this whole this concept of attracting things into my life. Yeah, but you don't want to take responsibility for the bad stuff you're attracting. Just the good stuff. Many people agree with the notion that you draw or attract, right? And they even agree that you draw people into your life, those things that you pay the most attention to. Many may also agree that they have tapped in to only a small portion of their understanding of their mental capacity and capability. Come on, is there any possibility then that you made some decision that you might not even be aware of sometime prior to you going out on this appointment? that you actually created this supposed accident so that you could continue to have someone to blame in life? 
If it's even remotely possible, then it's worth investigating. Understand that you had to be at that one place at that perfect moment in order to be involved in this accident. Thousands of other people were not involved. You were. You left at the precise time to coordinate with some other person on one of hundreds of streets and then arranged to be at the exact spot in front of the guy rather than behind him at the precise moment and position yourself directly in front of that one special driver who was not even paying attention and rammed into your car. Look, when bad things happen to good people, I assure you that the good people had more to do with it than they're taking responsibility for. So bad things do happen to good people. Just understand, the good people had something to do with it. Had you left moments earlier, moments, seconds, you could have avoided the supposed accident. Had you been driving at any other speed, okay, faster or slower, it would have been impossible for you to have coordinated so perfectly. Had you taken any other street, this would not have happened. Sound too far out? Yeah, maybe it is. Was it just an accident or was it bad luck? Oh, maybe you're just a victim, destined to a life of bad luck and misfortune. When the physical universe keeps slapping you around and it's not getting any better, you may want to consider that things happen not just by luck and happenstance, but that you might have something to do with what is happening that's causing you to get slapped around all the time. Look, you're getting slapped around. Remember, although it may be happening to you, it's happening because of you as well. Although you may not want to claim responsibility for the accident or the slapping, or you might not want to tell the police report, hey, by the way, I had something to do with this. The reality is the insurance company is going to exact a penalty on you regardless of whose fault it was. Dude, you're going to get hammered either way. You're going to get rear-ended. It wasn't your fault. And the insurance company is going to raise your rates. Now, keep one thing in mind. Anytime you play a victim in order to be right, you're taking on the identity of a victim. And that can't be a good thing. Would you teach your kids be a victim? Huh, you send them to that class. Hey, we got a class. It's three months long. We want you to get an A. It's how to be a victim class. You basically will learn in this class how to turn responsibility over to other people for everything that happens in your life. Come on, man. You would never do that. Until a person is done being a victim, he or she is unable to create solutions and success. Impossible for a victim to create success because they've turned it over to someone else. That person only has problems. Once you start to approach every situation as someone who is acting, not being acted upon, you will start to have more control over life. Having or failing to have success, I believe, is a direct result of everything you're doing and thinking of yourself. You are the source, the generator, the origin, and the reason for everything, positive and negative. You're the start, the end all, baby. You're it. You're the generator for all the electricity. This is not meant to simplify the concept of success or the creation of success or the maintaining of and keeping of success, of course, but until you decide you're responsible for everything, you likely will not take the actions necessary to get you above the game, the game you're playing right now with all these problems. However, if you want to have it all, then of course, come on, you got to accept responsibility for everything. Otherwise, you're going to waste a lot of potential 10x energy making excuses instead of profits. It is a myth and a falsehood to think that success just happens or that it just happens to some people. I know that the approach I'm suggesting works because it's the one I've used to accumulate my own success. I didn't grow up 
in an especially privileged household. I didn't grow up with connections to the supposedly right people. I was giving no money to start my companies and had no money. I was not especially gifted, okay? Yet, I've been able to accumulate financial, physical, spiritual, and emotional success that is far beyond anything most people expected of me, all because I was willing to take actions at massive levels, assume complete control, take total responsibility for every outcome, whether it was the flu, a stomachache, a car wreck, a criminal stealing my money, my computer crashing, or even the electricity going out on my neighborhood, I assumed control and responsibility. And it was only until I started to believe that nothing happened to me and happened because of me was I able to start really operating at the level, 10x levels, necessary. Someone once said to me when I was 25, 26 years old, Grant, no matter where I am, there I go. This little saying like literally turned me, pivoted me in my mind that no matter where I go, there I am. That's me there. It's me and all my stuff. This little saying suggested to me that I'm both the problem and the solution. Dude, that's the good news. If you're the problem, then you're the solution. If Dan's the problem, you don't have a solution, a way out. I didn't allow myself to blame anyone anymore. I didn't allow myself any more justifications for hardships that I encountered. I started to believe that although I may not always have a say in what happens to me, I always have a choice about how I respond to what happens to me. Look, success is not a journey, as countless people and books suggest. It's a state. It's a constant or otherwise state over which you have complete control and responsibility. You either create success or you don't. And it isn't for whiners. It's not for crybabies. It ain't for victims. You doubtlessly have gifts you have yet to use, or you wouldn't have picked up this book, man. 10X? Come on, who picks up a 10X book? You obviously clearly have gifts you have yet to use, potential that remains completely untapped. And you've been endowed with a desire for greatness, or you wouldn't be reading this. And you're aware enough to know that there are no shortage of success. Hopefully I convince you of that. Now, increase your responsibility level. Assume control for everything that happens to you. And live by the slogan that nothing happens to you, it happens because of you. And remember, don't be a little bitch. Okay, exercise. What do you want to assume control of in your life? What do you want to assume control of in your life? Two, success is not something that happens to you. It's something that happens fill in the blank. Three, I want you to write down three examples when you made success happen, where it didn't just happen, you made it happen. And the last exercise, what are the four consistent factors in life of the victim? Chapter seven, four degrees of action. One question that I've received over the years is exactly how much action grant is necessary to create success. Not surprisingly, everyone is looking for the secret shortcut, me too. And equally unsurprising is the following fact. There are no shortcuts. The more action you take, the better your chances of getting a break. Disciplined, consistent, and persistent actions are more of a determining factor in the creation of success than any other combination of things. Understanding how to calculate that and then take the right amount of action is more important than your concept your idea, your invention, or your business plan. 
Most people fail only because they're operating at the wrong degree of action. To simplify action, we're going to break down your choices into four simple categories or degrees of action. Your four choices are, one, do nothing, two, retreat, three, take normal levels of action, or four, take massive action. Now, before I get into describing each of these, it's important to understand that everyone utilizes all four degrees of action at some time in their lives and especially in response to different areas of their lives. For instance, you might use massive action in your career, but then completely retreat when it comes to your civic duties and your responsibilities. Another person might do nothing when it comes to learning about social media, even retreat from it. Another might take normal levels of action when it comes to eating healthy and exercising, but overexcel, take massive action when it comes to destructive habits. A person is obviously going to excel and do best in those areas in which he or she invests the most attention and takes the most action, unless, of course, the area is destructive. Unfortunately, most people on this planet spend their time in the first, second, and third degrees of action. Do nothing, retreat completely, or operate at normal levels of activity. The first two degrees of action, doing nothing and retreating, are the basis for failure. And the third degree, normal levels of action, will only create a normal existence at best. Now, let me say one thing. Number three, taking normal levels of action, is the killer of the four. Because it deludes you into believing you're doing something when only what you're doing is normal and will never get you to extraordinary. Only the most successful people on very high levels of action that I refer to as massive levels are the ones most likely to succeed. So let's take a look at each of the four degrees to see what they mean and why you might choose each in a range of situations and areas of your life. The first degree of action, doing nothing. It's exactly what it sounds like, no longer taking actions to move yourself forward in order to learn, achieve, or control some area. People who do nothing in their careers, relationships, or whatever they want have probably given up on their dreams and are now willing to accept pretty much whatever comes their way. Despite how it may sound, do not assume that nothing requires no energy, no effort, and no work. Regardless of which degree of action you operate in, they all require work in their own way. Signs that you are doing nothing include boredom, lethargic, complacency, a lack of purpose, apathy. See, people in this group will find themselves spending their time and energy justifying their situations. They're actually spending energy. They're not doing nothing. They spend energy justifying why they're not doing anything, which requires as much work as all the other actions. When the alarm goes off in the morning, the doing nothing group will not respond at all. They sleep through the, uh, through the alarm going off. Although it may appear that they're not taking action, it actually takes a lot of energy not to get up in the morning. It takes a lot of mental energy to say, no, I'm just going to stay here in bed. It takes work to lose a job because of lack of production. It is work to be overlooked for a promotion and have to wait another year to be considered and then go home and have to explain this to your spouse. It takes tremendous effort to exist on this planet as an underappreciated and underpaid person. And it takes even more energy to make sense of the whole situation. The person not taking action has to make excuses for his or her condition. 
This requires tremendous creativity and effort. Salespeople who do nothing and then lose a sale because of doing nothing more often than they win have to explain to themselves, their spouses and their bosses, why they're not hitting their quotas. It's also interesting to note that those who do nothing in one area of their life will find something they love to do and spend time doing those things, something for which they often take massive levels of action. It could be online poker, gaming, biking, watching movies, reading books, whatever. Whatever it may be, I assure you, there's some place, some part of your life that receives full energy, attention, and massive levels of activity. Those who do nothing will then insist to their friends and family that they're happy and content and that all is right with them, which only serves as confusion to everyone that has to listen because it's evident that this person is not living up to their full potential. The second degree of action, retreaters, are those who take actions in reverse, probably in order to avoid negative experiences that they imagine will come as a result of actually taking action. The retreater personifies the fear of success phenomenon. He or she has experienced results that were not fruitful or that he or she did not perceive as fruitful, probably better to say, and has therefore decided to avoid taking further actions that may prompt whatever they think could occur again. Like the do-nothings, retreaters justify their responses and believe it is in their best interest to remain operating at this current retreat level. Retreaters claim to be doing so in order to avoid more rejection or failures. It is almost never the actual rejection or failure that has impacted them, but something else. More often than not, it's their impression and evaluation of what failing and rejection mean that is causing them to justify retreat. Like doing nothing, retreating is an action that requires effort and hard work. Watch any healthy child, and you will see that it is not a normal human behavior to retreat. It is normal to advance and conquer. Usually, retreating only comes about as a result of being told to do so over and over and over again. So many of us have been instructed during childhood, don't touch that, be careful, don't talk to him, get away from that, and so on and on and on, and then start to adopt retreat as a survival activity. We tend to be pulled away from the very things about which we're most curious in life. Although it's often for our own good and supposedly keeps us safe, it can be difficult from years of being educated like this, of holding back, which might be why it's so difficult for many of us to try new things later in life. We might even be encouraged to retreat by a work associate, a friend, a manager, or a family member who believes we're being too ambitious or too focused or too dedicated in some area of life. Look, regardless of the reasons why retreaters move themselves into the opposite direction of their goals, the outcome is usually the same. I would imagine that everyone listening to this knows someone who has retreated. And perhaps you can even see how that retreat affected them negatively in some area of their life. Any realm in which you have assumed you can no longer advance and improve and are now deciding there's nothing you can do except retreat, would be and should be considered an area of retreat. The stock market sucks. I'm never investing in the markets again. Retreat. Most marriages fail. I'm staying single. Retreat. The acting business is too tough. Retreat. 
I'll just be a waiter for the rest of my life. I can't own my own business. Retreat. The job market's terrible. No one's hiring. I'm filing for unemployment. Big retreat. I can't control the outcome of the election. I'm not going to even vote. Retreat into apathy. And notice the one thing that each of these scenarios has in common. They all still require some kind of action to be taken, even if it's just making a decision to retreat. Those who retreat will spend a lifetime justifying why they're retreating. There's usually no arguing with these individuals as they have typically convinced themselves completely that they're merely doing what they must do in order to survive. They will then spend as much energy justifying that decision to retreat as the most successful person will while they're creating their success. The best thing you can do for retreaters is to give them this book, have them listen to this audio program, and allow them, hopefully, if they can, to identify for themselves that they're in retreat. Here's the deal. Once a person sees the four degrees of action, maybe for the first time, and realizes that each of the four require energy, he or she may wake up to make other healthier choices. After all, if you're going to expend energy either way, why not do it in the direction of success? The third degree. People who take normal levels of action are probably the most prevalent in our society today. This is the group that appears on the surface to be taking the necessary amounts of action, and it's a normal level. This level of action creates the middle class. I'm not talking about earning level. I'm talking about people the way they think. This is actually the most dangerous of activities because it's considered acceptable. People in this group spend their lives taking enough action only enough action to appear average and create average lives, average marriages, average careers. However, they never do quite enough to create the levels of success that they can maintain for their survival. Unfortunately, a majority of the workforce takes normal degrees of action. It's the managers, executives, and companies that blend in more than they stand out. Although some members of this group may occasionally attempt to generate exceptional quality, they almost never create anything in exceptional quantities. The goal here is average. Average marriage, average health, average career, average finances. As long as average works, they're good to go. They're fine. They don't cause problems for others or themselves as long as conditions remain steady and predictable. However, the moment market conditions become negatively impacted and therefore less than average or normal, these same average people will suddenly realize they're at a big risk. Add any serious change to the conditions in which people take only normal actions, which I promise you will happen at some point in your lifetime, and all bets are off. It's not uncommon to encounter a situation that will challenge your life, your career, your marriage, your business, and your finances. Maybe all of them all at the same time. When you've been taking only normal levels of actions, when you've been making only normal investments in your future, you become more susceptible to the challenges that are certain to come your way. Any set of ordinary events, financial conditions, or stressful experiences can throw off a lifetime of typically acceptable levels of action and will result in serious degrees of stress, uncertainty, and hurt. Average, by definition, assumes, look it up for yourself, less than extraordinary. That is the definition. Average, less than extraordinary. 
It is truly, to some degree or another, just an alternative description of retreat and no action. Do you understand? The first three are really the same. Average levels is actually a retreat from what you're capable of. It doesn't even take into consideration the negative spiritual effects of a person knowing that your true potential is much greater for action. And then you operate below that, which you are completely capable of. This is where the ethics come in. Someone who takes average actions, but is capable of much more, is really electing to do some variation of nothing or retreating. So be honest with yourself. Do you have more energy and creativity available than you're using? You probably said yes. Look, average student, average marriage, average kids, average finances, average business, average product, average body type. Who really desires average? Imagine that the products and services that you're so often tempted to purchase used average in their advertising. Imagine, this fairly advertised product can be found at an average price and delivers mediocre results. Who would buy such a product? People certainly wouldn't go out of their way to find and pay for run-of-the-mill merchandise. We're offering cooking classes this week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursdays, that will guarantee you become an average cook. I can do that now without taking a class. Hey, new movie coming out, opening this weekend, average director, average acting, and the critics are raving two hours of average action on an average-sized screen in an average-sized theater near you. Oh, man, I can't wait to stand in line for that one and pay 14 bucks. Taking normal action is the most dangerous of all levels. Okay, you need to get this, man. Just doing average is going to kill you. It's accepted by society, so you're going to get support from society that what you're doing is all right, and there lies the big lie. This level of action has been authorized by the masses, and therefore people who don't take normal actions don't draw the necessary attention required to catapult them into success. Companies call me constantly to help the lower performers in their organization, yet they're overlooking the average and the top performers who are only taking average actions. I want to work with the average and the top performers, not the retreaters, because they are most capable. This book is probably more likely to wake up the third group than the first two. This book is probably going to wake up the normal action taker than someone who does nothing or retreats. Since the do-nothing, look, probably didn't even walk into the bookstore anyway. He's doing nothing. And the retreater, probably, if he saw the book, he retreated from it. Oh, that's dangerous. I can't go to 10x. People who take average or normal levels of action will buy this book, will buy this program, and hopefully come out from underneath the hypnotic spell that has been placed on you. It's only by moving from the third to the fourth degree of action that you can turn an average existence into an exceptional life. The fourth degree, massive action. Though it might sound far-fetched, massive action is the most natural state of action there is for all of us. Look at children. They're in constant action, massive